Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 40, the book of Revelation, chapters 18 and 19. Well, as we continue through the book of Revelation, what is becoming clear is that Babylon the Great represents more than one thing or one entity. This is critically important to not only intellectually understand what John's apocalypse is telling us, but because what we're learning in Revelation is as real as it gets, folks. We need to be able to interpret events and geopolitical changes as they happen around us. It seems that Babylon the Great is a system. It's not a thing. It's a system. The way, same way a car is a system. That is, a car consists of several major pieces. Like, like an engine, a transmission, suspension, a body, so on and so forth, that are each somewhat independent, and yet they must be integrated into a single organized system in order for a car to serve its function as transportation for people. So Babylon the Great represents both a secular commercial portion but also a vast religious institutional portion. These pieces are going to interlock in some way. Even if a single entity or person might not exactly control both pieces. And yet these pieces are cooperative with each other that they can be thought of as operating as a single system called Babylon. Now Babylon the Great also represents an actual place, a capital city if you would, as well as a spirit of idolatrous worldliness. Thus Babylon the Great has the ability and the intent to corrupt nations and people and the world economy and religious faith. Is it any wonder that God is judging her so harshly as to give her twice as much punishment for her sins as the proportional punishment system of the law of Moses might call for? Now last week we read from Ezekiel and Jeremiah in order to connect those ancient prophecies to what is going to occur in the end times with Babylon the Great. As Craig Kester rightly puts in his book, The End of All Things, John's portrayal of Babylon's fall is a tapestry woven from threads taken from many periods of time. Much of the language echoes the threats against Tyre in Ezekiel 26 through 28, together with those against ancient Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51. 
it is instructive to know that other prophets were also given similar information. Information that must have been greatly puzzling to them. But when we see their obvious connection to the book of Revelation, and we realize that in modern times, money and commerce trumps everything in the Western world. Everything. Then we can begin to get an inkling of what predictably lies just around the corner in human history, since human nature remains constant throughout time. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to read that all together. It's not very long. Zechariah chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 775. I'll give you a second to get there. Zechariah chapter 5. Again, I raised my eyes, and I saw in front of me a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I replied, I see a flying scroll, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of all the land. For according to what is written on one side, everyone who steals will be swept away. And according to what is written on the other side, everyone who swears will be swept away. I will release it, says Adonai Zevaot, and I will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will stay there inside the house and consume it completely, even its timbers and stones. Then the angel speaking with me went forward and said to me, Now, raise your eyes and see what this thing is passing by. And I asked, What is it? He said, This is the ephah measure passing by. And then he added, This is their eye in all the land. And next I saw a lead disc lifted up to reveal a woman who was sitting on the ephah. And he said, This is evil. And he threw her down into the ephah. And he pressed the lid weight over its opening. And I raised my eyes and saw two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like those of a stork. They lifted the ephah up between the earth and the sky. And I asked the angel speaking with me, Where are they taking the ephah? And he answered me, To build it a shrine in the land of Shinar. And when it's ready, the ephah will be set down there on its base. Okay. Why did we read that? In Hebrew thought, the ephah, which is more typically in English just said ephah, it's a, it's a unit, an ephah is a, a unit of dry measurement, like a bushel. An ephah is emblematic in Hebrew thought of commerce. 
And note in this passage we read how this mysterious woman is placed upon the epha, the system of commerce, and then this huge lead lid is put over it to indicate that the circumstance is divinely sealed and no human can change it. Then sometime later, the Epha with the woman and the lead lid is transported by two other women to a very specific place, the land of Shinar. And there a shrine is going to be built to the Epha and to the woman who's sealed inside of it. This is a picture of how Babylon will be created as a monument to the world's economic system. And the whore of Babylon will sit atop that commerce and economic system. And so there will be a specific place where this where the capital of this system is going to exist. Whether that place exists today, I don't know. In this prophecy of Zechariah, this place is represented by the land of Shinar. Now, eight times in the Hebrew Bible, Shinar directly refers to Babylon. Eight times. In fact, you recall the Babel, Babylon, that Nimrod ruled over. Babel was said to be located where? The land of Shinar. Interesting. So Shinar is emblematic of a place that is the center of idolatry, wickedness, and a human system of commerce and government and religion, but it all opposes God. So as I spoke about just minutes ago, Babylon the Great of the future is a system. It's a system composed of several pieces. And that's how we, we, we must understand it. And since context is everything, when studying God's Word, and since Revelation 18 is not a long chapter, Let's reread it together to get our bearings to start today's lesson. So please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it starts on page 1549. 1549, Revelation chapter 18. Please follow along with me. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he had great authority. The earth was lit up by his splendor, and he cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen! She has fallen! Babel the great! She has become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her. And from her unrestrained love of luxury, the world's businessmen grew rich. 
And then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. For her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Render to her as she has rendered to others. Pay her back double for what she has done. Use the cup in which she has brewed to brew her a double-sized drink. Give her as much torment and sorrow as the glory and luxury she gave herself. For in her heart she says, I sit a queen. I'm not a widow. I'll never see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in a single day. Death, sorrow, and famine. She will be burned with fire. Because Adonai, God, her judge, is mighty. The kings of the earth who went whoring with her and shared her luxury will sob and wail over her when they see the smoke as she burns. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment, they'll say, oh no, the great city, Babel, the mighty city in a single hour, your judgment has come. The world's businessmen weep and mourn over her because no one is buying their merchandise anymore. Stocks of gold and silver and gems and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, all the rare woods, all ivory goods, all kinds of things made of scented wood and brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, cardamom, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, grain, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and bodies and people's souls. The fruit you lusted for with all of your heart have gone. All the luxury and flashiness have been destroyed, never to return. The sellers of these things who got rich from her are going to stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Oh no, the great city used to wear fine linen, purple and scarlet. She glittered with gold and precious stones and pearls, such great wealth, and in a single hour ruined. All the shipmasters and passengers and sailors, everyone making his living from the sea, they stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke as she burned. What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and they mourned, saying, Oh no, the great city, the abundance of her wealth made all the ship owners rich and in a single hour she's ruined. Rejoice over her, heaven. Rejoice, people of God, emissaries and prophets. For in judging her, God has vindicated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a great millstone and he hurled it into the sea saying, With violence like this will the great city Babel be hurled down never to be found again. The sound of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never again be heard in you. No worker of any trade will ever again be found in you. The sound of a mill will never again be heard in you. The light of a lamp will never again shine in you. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will never again be heard in you. For your businessmen were the most powerful on earth. All the nations were deceived by your magic spell. 
In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's people indeed of all who have ever been slaughtered on earth. Notice how John's visions indicate this absolute universal sway of Babylon upon humanity. Every nation in one way or another has succumbed to her seduction. Every human institution has been adversely affected by Babylon from government to the economy to education to religion. Charles Feinberg in his commentary on Revelation says this, Godless religion knows how to capture the attention of the unwary world. By display, by ritual, by an easy means of redemption and vast amounts of wealth. Not only am I in full agreement with his statement, but I would add that godless religion also knows how to continuously remold itself so as to not antagonize the world system. So as to appear to agree with whatever direction societal morality has taken by declaring it godly. So believers, as difficult as it is in our time to try to balance our faith and trust in God with maintaining relationships with family and friends and community, sorry to say it's only going to get more challenging as time marches on. Christ warned us a long time ago that taking up our cross and following Him would often mean hardships in our relationships as opposed to the healing of those relationships. And yet, for the disciple who could not bring him or herself to make that difficult choice to follow him, even if it means damaging, even losing the relationship of those dearest to us, Christ says he has little use for us. Luke 14, 25-27 Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua and turning he said to them If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters yes, his own life he cannot be my disciple whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's pretty strong words. I want to be clear. This passage is not calling to abrogate the commandment to honor your father and mother. Nor is it a commandment to intensely dislike your family members. Rather, see, in ancient times, to love and to hate often carried a different sense to it almost political sense. See, it wasn't about affection. Rather, it was about loyalty. Loyalty. To love your king was to be loyal to him. To hate your king was to commit treason. This is the sense that Yeshua means it in this verse. 
It is that in the end, we must all be less loyal to our family members, even our own life, than we are to Christ. For a believer, loyalty to Yeshua must trump all. And if we cannot promise that, Christ says we cannot be His disciples. Now verses 9 and 10 bring home the fact that the leaders of nations are going to wail and mourn when God judges Babylon because all that they valued is destroyed along with her. These are the people who have the most to lose in the collapse of the world economy. But of course no one, no one is going to be able to escape its effects because the demise of the world's economy means the demise of countless companies, the loss of millions upon millions of jobs. So we must not sit back and think that should we happen to be alive during this time that we might only be mildly affected because what comes with economic depression? Chaos. Chaos in government. Chaos in society. A dog-eat-dog mentality develops. Who to blame? That's upon everybody's mind. Whose fault is this? People are going to be looking for a savior to make things right again. A person with all the answers. Someone who can alleviate their immediate suffering and give them hope for a brighter future. That makes the masses moldable, suggestible, and so easy prey for a smooth-talking tyrant. The world's merchants are devastated, we're told, because nobody is buying their goods. Some 28 separate items are listed. Everything from staples to luxury items. This means that even the formerly wealthy will not have the means to buy the things they used to take for granted. But that these merchants also have no market for staples such as flour and grain makes it clear that even those in the middle and the lower rungs of society are going to find themselves in a state of poverty that they had never known. Governments will not be able, I promise you, to fulfill their promises of a social safety net because the demand is going to be too great. People, even food pantries, are going to run out because those who donate won't have the means anymore. You know, it's interesting that the final two items that are listed are no longer being in demand and as being in demand are usually translated as one of two ways either as bodies and souls of men or as slaves and souls of men. Now very likely it's the second way that's intended because it comports well with what we just read last week in the related texts of Ezekiel. 
matter of fact, in Ezekiel 27, we read of the end of selling human slaves along with all these other goods that are no longer in demand. So in the end times, it's hard to know if this is speaking like of something like human trafficking or something not quite as sinister, such as merely supplying employment. I don't, I don't know. Okay. Either way, I don't see this passage as using this term souls in, in a spiritual sense. Now verse 14 continues with other items considered luxurious, but what drew my eye was the statement that all the luxury and flashiness have been destroyed never to return. There will be no return to prosperity for the world. The rich have lost everything and they will not recover. The world will be a fundamentally different place from that point forward. Now verse 15 offers another category of people who are going to be devastated by Babylon's destruction. These would be the shopkeepers, local retailers, who also got rich according to the world system promoted by Babylon. They too, we're told, they stand at a distance weeping and mourning as fair weather friends who won't go near Babylon now that she's of no use to them. And, interesting, they are afraid. They fear being associated with Babylon any further because they don't want to suffer its fate, we're told. We're told this numerous times in this chapter. I want to back up for a minute and, and, and I want us to think about what's being implied here. First, how's Babylon being destroyed? It's not some direct supernatural judgment of God like fire raining down from the sky upon Sodom. It's not what's happening. Rather, it's the result of these ten kings represented by the ten horns who turn against Babylon and destroy her. We're told this directly. And since Babylon is depicted as being burned by fire, laying in smoldering ruins, then of course this result has come from war. It must be a coordinated surprise attack akin to Pearl Harbor because it happens almost overnight. And Babylon seems to be in complete ignorance of what's about to occur. So these particular kings, those ten kings, they're not mourning. They're jubilant. They achieved their goal. It is the remainder of all the world's leaders and the wealthy and the merchants. It's they who are wailing in deep sorrow. And as we discussed in the last lesson, in the world as we know it today, might there be nations that would be thrilled to join in the collapse of the world economic system and the destruction of the financial capital of the Western world? We have to remember that the 9-11 attack on New York City was precisely for the purpose of destroying the world economic system in the mind of those terrorists who perpetrated it. And we read here in Revelation 18 that the big importers and exporters as well as the retail shopkeepers were told they refused to go anywhere near Babylon 
or stand up for her in any way, even though they greatly lament her fall because her economic fate is tied to theirs. Why is this? Why are they acting this way? No doubt they're being restrained by fear. Why? We're told so. It's out of fear. And as I look to all the present forces in the world to see how it might work if it happened today, Islam and Islamic nations fit this scenario to a T. They not only hate the world economic system because they see it as a Western Judeo-Christian based system. They hate anyone and everyone that's in any way associated with it. Islam has demonstrated time and time again that even a minor association with a nation or an organization that in some way represents the Western world system, that's enough to warrant an attack. In modern times, we have witnessed EU members and other nations go to great lengths to appease these threatening demands of Islam rather than confronting them. I believe that this is the essence of what is happening in these verses. And unless the geopolitical landscape changes over the next several years, and it certainly could, I see Islam as the driving force behind the destruction of Babylon. Well, next the shipping magnates and their passengers and the sailors who work on the ships also stand at a distance in fear. And they weep and they mourn over the demise of Babylon. They exclaim the nearly identical words of all the others when they say that Babylon brought such wealth to the seafarers and the owners of the ships, but now in a single day it's all gone. It's all evaporated. The point of this series series of dirges is that the fall of Babylon affects every facet of commerce on earth. Nobody's going to escape it. Nobody. But then suddenly, in verse 20, everything changes. That's because the location of what's being talked about changes from earth to heaven. And as the people of earth moan and weep, the residents of heaven, what are they doing? Rejoicing. From God's perspective, what He has promised has finally come about. Redemption and validation for those who love Him. Justice and vengeance upon those who oppose Him. The suffering and the persecution that Jews and Christians have faced for as much as 3,000 years are going to be avenged. Because as verse 20 ends, for in judging her, Babylon, God has vindicated you. So part of Babylon's evil world system includes the persecution of God's people. Let's pause for a moment and and, and think this premise through. Since Babylon's evil world system incorporates a massive religious institution, and since Babylon's evil world system is based around Western world values that are constantly deteriorating, I think it would be fair to say, 
then we can only conclude that this religious institution is going to pawn itself off as Judeo-Christian. So since this is the case, how can it be that God's chosen are going to be persecuted? We find a very strong clue to this conundrum in the Gospel accounts. However, since John is the writer of Revelation, I think we should use the wording of his Gospel as he addresses this very matter. Listen to this. In John 16, 1-4, he says, I have told you these things so that you will not be caught by surprise. They're going to ban you from the synagogue. In fact, the time is going to come when anyone who kills you thinks he's serving God. They will do these things because they have understood neither the Father nor me. But I've told you this, so that when the time comes for it to happen, you will remember that I told you. I didn't tell you this at first, because I was with you then. In other words, it is the dominant religious institution of the end times, no doubt claiming to be Judeo-Christian, that's going to be the persecutor of God's true chosen. But in fact, this institution is built on deceit and will be nothing but part of the Babylon the Great system. It may well be, at that time, the only authorized, acceptable, Christian religious institution. The result of the never-ending and naively mistaken, constant refrain within the modern churches for what? Unity! Unity! And if a believer disagrees with them, that person will be banned, no doubt formally or informally excommunicated. And according to Messiah Yeshua, this religious institution is even going to kill some of the non-conforming believers and claim it's all being done in the name of God. Again, without doubt, because those non-conforming believers are threatening the unity of the church. And why will this great institution do this? Because their members will have been taught by the church leadership that to eradicate these radical believers who do not march to the tune of the institutional church and follow their teachings, this is going to be pleasing to the Lord. How could those who profess Jesus so easily believe such nonsense? Because as Yeshua said, they have understood neither the Father nor Christ. It doesn't say they've never heard of me. They don't know anything about me. It says they've misunderstood the Father and Him. They are blind and deceived. I contend this can only happen, can only happen, if the Bible, the Word of God, is more or less abandoned and replaced by man-made doctrines that formulate a new kind of religious philosophy 
based on the experiential, the human intellect. The rejection of anything as primitive as a 2,000 year old holy book. And by the way, this is happening right now. Over and over in the New Testament, we are reminded Yeshua is the Word of God. So if one rejects God's Word, what automatically rejects He who is that Word? Christ. They go together. You can't separate them. Now this premise now takes us full circle back to verses 4 and 5. So that the full impact of what God is exhorting believers to do can be fully realized if we have the ears to hear and if we have a heart that's willing to obey. At Revelation 18.4.5 Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not be infected by her plagues, for her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Get out of her. Flee this fraudulent religious institution that intertwines itself with Babylon and revels in the evil world system while insisting they represent the Lord of heaven and earth. And by the way, such a thing existed in Christ's day. And it exists now. And apparently it's going to become immensely influential in the final days of the end times. Now I could probably spend several minutes telling you how to recognize such an institution, but in my heart, I know you already know. You already know. It's an issue of accepting the reality of the ever-growing corruption of and Babylonish influence over some of our most cherished Christian institutions, some of which we may be supporting, instead of denying it because it's just too painful to face. And especially for those who are perhaps long-time, even lifelong members of a church that bears all the wrong characteristics those who face perhaps the most emotional and toughest decisions of, her, decisions of their lives. This is the one time that God more or less says, every man for himself. Do you want to go down with this sinking ship, he says? Is that what you want? Or do you want to avail yourself of the divinely ordered life raft? that God has provided for you. Which one do you want to do? You can't do both. And my urgent advice to you is to exercise enlightened self-interest. Back to the rejoicing now that's going on in heaven as the smoke of Babylon's ruin rises upward on earth. So we must understand that God is not reveling and the suffering and the death that's happening in Babylon. Rather, it is that the long wait for justice has finally come, and it goes hand in glove with the rescue of God's people and with removing Satan from his throne as the prince of the air. 
those believers who have stuck with God, who have clung to our Bibles and our faith in Christ, we will be vindicated. The fake believers who will form the worldwide church of Babylon are going to be exposed for who they really are. Those who have falsely accused their brethren, driven them from the true church, even killed them for not towing the mark, will have done to them what they did to the true believers. And we find this formula all the way back in the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19. The judges are to investigate carefully. If they find that the witness is lying and has given false testimony against his brother, you are to do to him what he intended to do to his brother. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you. Verse 21 then depicts a mighty angel that picks up a giant millstone, hurls it into the sea where, of course, it just sinks to the bottom. And this mighty angel says that it is with violence like this that the great city Babel is going to be hurled down, never found again. The, the millstone is, of course, figurative of Babylon, but I want you to take notice of something. Here, Babel, or Babylon, is called the great city. We've heard this before. I want you to recall back in chapter 17, verse 18, we had a substantial discussion about who the great city represented, that term, that term the great city. What did it represent? And the verse reads, And the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now in our discussion I said the commentators tend to choose from Jerusalem, Rome, or Babylon as that great city that's going to be judged and destroyed. And that my conclusion was that it could only be Babylon. Notice how chapter 18 verse 21 goes a long way towards clearing this matter up. So verse seven, so seventeen eighteen speaks of the woman, the harlot, as representing the great city. And eighteen twenty one says the great city is Babylon. Clearly, the great city must be Babylon. But also notice that Babylon is wiped off the face of the earth once and for all. And so from this, from this point forward, there is no more great city. Now the remainder of this chapter speaks of the irreversibility. Of Babylon's demise. Recovery is impossible. The happiness that was found in this remarkable city has come to an end, along with all the trappings of music, beautiful crafts, the joys of making a home, marriage, or even the simple warm glow of lighting a lamp to chase away the night. Rather, Babylon's fate is permanent, joyless darkness. And lest any pity or compassion by believers well up within them, it is made explicit that Babylon merits every calamity and misery she receives because she has infected, inflicted her terror and her homicidal brutality upon God's prophets and his saints. Babylon, at least everything she represents, is to blame for killing every follower 
of God that has ever existed on earth. Let's move on to chapter 19. Open your Bibles up now to Revelation chapter 19. We won't get very far, but we're going to read it. Page 1551. Revelation chapter 19. After these things, I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! The victory, the glory, the power of our God for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her whoring. He has taken vengeance on her who has the blood of servants of his servants on her hands. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God sitting on the throne and said, Amen! Hallelujah! A voice went out from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you servants, you who fear him great and small. Then I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd, like the sound of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! Adonai, God of heaven's armies, has begun his reign. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory. For the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. Fine linen, bright and clean, has been given her to wear. And the angel said to me, Write, how blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he added, These are God's very words. I fell at his feet to worship him. He said, Don't do that. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who have the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God. For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Well, next I saw heaven opened. And there before me was a white horse, and sitting on it was the one called Faithful and True, and in it righteousness, and it is in righteousness that he passes judgment and goes to battle. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many royal crowns. He had a name written which nobody knew but himself. He was wearing a robe that had been soaked in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. It is he who treads the winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written on it. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out in a loud voice to all the birds that fly about in mid-heaven, Come, gather together for the great feast that God is giving to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of important men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all kinds of people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to do battle with a rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was taken captive, and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the miracles which he had used to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and all those who worshipped his image. The beast and the false prophet were both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh." I would characterize chapter 19 as sort of a doxology, a hymn of praise that ends a section of, of, of a worship service. 
that celebrates the final destruction of Babylon on account of all she has done, all she has stood for, for over a millennia. And what she stood for? What has Babylon stood for? The corruption of God's perfect creation. That's what she stands for. Since verse 20 of the previous chapter, the scene has shifted from earth back to heaven. So everything we read about will be taking place not in the physical sphere, but rather in the spiritual sphere. And it is critical that we always keep these two spheres of existence separate, even though there is a a certain connection between them. Now another element of chapter 19 we shouldn't overlook is that it is ushering us into the final moments of human history as we have known it and into the new age that the church calls the millennial age. It's ironic that while at least the knowledgeable among believers and many within Judaism are expecting such a thing and looking forward to it with joy and great anticipation, the remaining part of humanity, interestingly, is also expecting an imminent end to human history. But view that prospect as something to be terrified over, for mankind to unite, to battle against it at all costs. Climate change is the latest worry that is seen as perhaps the catalyst for the end of the world by many. Others think it may be something like a giant asteroid striking the earth that causes an extinction level event similar to what ended the era of the dinosaurs. And on both accounts people are placing their faith in science and technology to save them. Perhaps the most stated reason among advocates for colonizing Mars for Pete's sake is to increase the odds for the survival of the human race. That is, if humans reside on two separate planets, then the chances of being wiped out as a species in both places near zero. Already Christianity is under fire for essentially being on the wrong side of history. Since we see the end as necessary, divinely ordained, and thus unstoppable, and fully under God's control, not ours. And while we may hold some trepidations about it, because what leads up to it is going to involve a lot of suffering and cataclysm, in general, God's people understand that this end is for our benefit. And so it is to be welcomed as what comes next is the end of suffering and death and evil. So it's not hard to imagine that as these final days come into full view and the Antichrist begins his rule and the judgments of God manifest in earnest that those who have no intention of allowing the end to human history if there's any means to stop it well they're going to be in direct confrontation with believers who are praying for the end to arrive and it's also not hard to imagine 
that this giant religious institution that claims to represent Judeo-Christianity but actually is aligned with Babylon is going to stand with those who battle to try to save earth and to keep the end from happening. That is, they will be fighting against God's plan and God's will. This is at least partly what we have been reading about in Revelation. So fellow believers, here's where we stand. On the one hand, we are to take good care of this magnificent home that the Lord has created and given to us. Of course we are. But on the other, the ultimate fate of this planet and the humanity it harbors has already been determined by God. And to join with the science and academic and secular communities to try to, to, try to thwart God's will on this matter, that's sin. It represents the spirit of Babylon. And it's going to take much wisdom and prayer for us to walk that, that fine line between proper caretaking of our earthly resources versus believing that our deliverance lies in the hands of superior human intellect and ingenuity. John's vision continues as he hears what can only be the roar of a huge number of people in heaven. No attempt to quantify this number is made. There's no attempt to identify the crowd. That's because there's no need to wonder over it. These are the countless souls of the redeemed in Christ because only the redeemed, along with God's heavenly angels, can even exist in heaven. And if we take what we're reading literally, the first words of this heavenly doxology are, appropriately enough, Hallelujah! Hallelujah is a Hebrew word, two words actually. And in English it just means, praise God! The early church father Augustine said that the feeling and saying of this word, Hallelujah, incorporates all the blessedness of heaven. Sadly, on planet Earth, we know so very much about cursing God, denying God, demeaning God, and slandering His blessed name. But in heaven, only praise for the Creator and all of His glory is known and expressed. So when we sincerely cry out, Hallelujah! We're just bringing a little bit of heaven to earth. We have in the verses of chapter 19 a beautiful example of heavenly praise and we're going to go over it quite carefully the next time we meet.